circumstances we find ourselves in are, are difficult, they're tough, painful sometimes, regardless of what they may be, Lord, we worship you, we praise you, we give you the glory that's due your name. And Lord, as we continue before you this morning, may our worship rise to you. May we give praise to your worthy name. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Please be seated. So daily, we are watching war on our televisions, our iPhones, our computers, and it's distressing, and we pray it would stop. In the Air Force, certainly the other services as well, but the one I know best, all officers, even chaplains, are required to attend Air War College in order to be considered for promotion to colonel. I earned a master's degree at the Air University entitled a Master of Military Operational Arts and Science. I, I don't really know that much about it. But, but one of the primary texts was called Vom Kriege, which means on war. I apologize to my German speakers. But it was written by a man by the name of Karl uh, von Clausewitz. One of the things he wrote in there, which is profound, is only the dead know the end of war. An accurate observation of the human condition. But he also coined another phrase, and that phrase was the culminating point. Today you may hear a, sort of a modernized version of it. If you watch TV, they'll call it an inflection point. But in particular, the culminating point has to do with military operations. So on the offensive, the culminating point is when the attacking force can no longer move forward to carry out its objectives, either because of resistance, because of supply problems, or because they're just wore out. It seems we're seeing that at least as it relates to the capital city, Kiev, uh, Russia has passed their culmination point. The attacker's task is to complete its mission before reaching the culminating point. And on the other hand, the defender's mission is to force the attacking force to their culminating point early, earlier certainly than the attacking force uh, wants it. In, in Ukraine, right now, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of skirmishes going on. And each skirmish, each little fight, has its own culminating point, where one side has at least a moment of elation or relief, and the other side pain. And it's the totality of these culminating points that allow for a culminating point to be reached in a battle and finally in a war. Very rarely are we able to see this at the micro level, that is, 
that is at the eye level. Uh, Yet in our civil war, some, including me, believe that the culminating point of the civil war was not the high water mark of the Confederacy reached by Pickett's charge. Rather, it was decided by a handful of men within a window of only 15 minutes to go one way or the other. And that made the difference. And at the time, none of the Confederate leaders, none of the Union leaders knew or even cared about it at the moment. And no matter what your thoughts or your beliefs or your politics about uh, the cause or conduct of the Civil War, there is one thing that's clear, to me at least. There was one skirmish out of innumerable skirmishes that was the culminating point. Like Pickett's charge, it happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, but it was far from the main action. It was on a little hill called Little Round Top. There was a small Confederate force that noted that that hill, which oversaw the entire Union flank, only had a few Signal Corps military members on it. And they knew right away, if we could take that hill, we can flank the Army of the Potomac and we can decimate it. And that battle would be over in a matter of hours. And then nothing lay between them and Washington, a mere four-day march away. Now, obviously, historians argue about all these things, and they certainly argue whether Washington could have been taken uh, by Lee, but it didn't really matter at that point because Lee didn't want to take Washington. All he wanted to do was sue for peace. They say that the Confederates had lost too many people, and yet at the same time, rarely do I hear that had this little action at Little Round Top happened a different way, Pickett's charge would never have happened. And if Pickett's charge had never had happened, you would have close to 10,000 more in your military able to move. Longstreet begged when he heard of this. Longstreet, General Longstreet begged to let them attack. But Lee's eye was on a different prize, and so he said no. Some of his leaders pressed this anyway because they saw, they understood And as they began their advance on Little Round Top, a signal officer on Little Round Top began to feverishly flag, get somebody up here, because it was clear what was happening, and and they could see it. Then a man named uh, Colonel Joshua Chamberlain showed up on the scene, and he knew immediately what was happening. Of the 20th Maine, he was a distinguished professor at Bowden College, in uh, Maine, and he realized that if Little Round Top fell, the Army of the Potomac would fall. Literally, at that moment, the only person in the Union who saw the truth was Colonel Chamberlain. A few minutes later, though, Colonel Strong Vincent arrived, and he arrived literally... 15 they had 15 minutes to set up their defenses 15 minutes shorter than the time 
that it will take to deliver this message, this battle was done in essence. And it turned on an amazing, an amazing thing. So he went to Colonel Chamberlain because the, the, the field was almost less than from where I'm standing to the church across the street. And he ran over to Chamberlain and he said to Chamberlain, hold this ground at all costs. And then he ran back to his side where the Confederates were beginning to flank and actually starting to flank and his line began to fold and he's running back and forth literally shouting, screaming, don't give an inch. And then a bullet found him. And his last words were, this is the fourth or fifth time they have shot at me and they have hit me at last. Almost simultaneously, at 4 p.m. on July the 2nd, 1863, the 20th Maine held off three explosive charges that managed to flank Chamberlain's men. The Union's light was flickering and no one knew it. Confederate victory was at hand and Lee was completely unaware. But at precisely that moment, something happened that no one expected. I believe it was something that could only come from Chamberlain's classical training as an academic, particularly his knowledge of the battles of antiquity. Knowing the stakes, Chamberlain, seeing that the defense was at the point where they could no longer carry out, he ordered his men with no reinforcements, no one to back them up, to fix bayonets and charge. And they performed a wheeling motion, full scale, down the hill, it's a downward slope, screaming and shooting and engaging the Confederate soldiers with fixed bayonets and hand-to-hand, terrific, horrible combat. And that extraordinary, completely unpredictable action drove them back to Big Round Top. And as briefly as I can tell it, and obviously I've condensed so much, is that's why the nation that we are in today is as it is. Men in pitched hand-to-hand, in extremis combat, obeyed their commander's order to stand firm. Chamberlain's men forced the culmination point of the Confederate advance. They had not met their objectives. So why am I telling you this? Why am I taking this much time to tell this story? I'll tell you why. And that is this. Europe passed their culminating point somewhere between the last two wars. And in my opinion, we are at the culminating point of Christianity in this country. And the question is before us, will we stand? Will we hold fast? The larger question is, do we even know 
that we're engaged in such a battle? Or are we oblivious? Do we understand the stakes? Many days I open my eyes and I wish for a simpler world, one in which truth has not been completely abandoned by the the wayside, where there aren't wars and pandemics, politics, injustice, loss, grief, violence, you name it, death, of course. And you may share these feelings. Some of these feelings I believe we would have anyway, but some of them I believe are born because of this discouragement is because of the misbelief that we are non-combatants. We believe that we aren't involved in this war. We move through life wanting to leave others alone and wanting to be left alone. But the reality is we are engaged in a war and many of us don't even know it. We hear about being woke all the time as if that concept were something new. I mean, Paul said it 2,000 years ago. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Guess what? Malachi said that 500 years earlier. And before Malachi said it, Isaiah said it 200 years before him. The message, though, is clear. Awake. Wake up. We are at war, and the culminating point is upon us. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 tells us this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments. Don't you just love that? We don't just win arguments. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are engaged in a cosmic battle. We are combatants, and we have been given... The exact same military command that was given to Colonel Vincent, that Colonel Vincent gave to Colonel Chamberlain, stand firm, hold fast. We see that in Second Thessalonians. Paul in chapter 2, Paul had just described, as we heard last week, the terrifying events that will come on the earth when the man of lawlessness is revealed and a delusion is sent such that people would believe the lie and they would be deceived by satanic phenomenon. God would send this delusion uh, such that it would be so compelling that they would believe it. And it's just here that Paul pauses. He pauses for just a moment. I can imagine the emotional energy that it took for him to write what he had just written. And he pauses because he wants to tell us something. He wants us to be reassured that we will not be a part of that great apostasy. We won't be a part of that. And he gives us three beautiful truths. First, that God loves us and chose us for salvation. Second, well, let me say just another word about that. God has not called us for judgment. He has not called us to that. And I think that's so important. And so that we may gain the glory 
of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, in verse 15, based on that calling, we have been ordered. We have standing orders. You may not have known that. To stand firm and hold fast to the traditions by word or letter. And finally, God equips us in living out those commands by affirming that we are loved, that we are comforted, and that we have reason to hope. So let's look at those three things a little closer. First, God loves us and chose us for salvation. Satan is at war with God. And therefore, he is at war with you and me. He uses, primarily, he uses discouragement. I mean, that's one of his primary tools. But he is very good at using persecution and trials to get us to doubt God's love and God's sovereignty. You know, we say, you know, well, if God, if God really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. Or maybe he loves me, but he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. So to combat that, those, those notions, Paul tells us about God's sovereignty and his love. He says this, this phrase there in 13, beloved by the Lord. The older that I get, the more precious this truth becomes. Because this truth is essential in reducing or eliminating our insecurities and our poor self-concepts because it's not from us. It's not society determining that in us. It's not us determining that. It's what God says about us that determines that. We are loved and sovereignly chosen for salvation through the gospel. I listen to uh, 89.3 quite often, and there's a song I hear on there frequently uh, by a group called Need to Breathe, and it's called Who Am I to Be Loved by You? Now, I understand and appreciate the sentiment. I do. But I also feel that the focus is in the wrong place. The right question, or at least the question that I would ask, is not who am I to be loved by you, but given that I am beloved of God, given that I am loved of God, who am I? I mean, the former starts with our unworthiness, which is true, but the latter starts with God's grace, which tells me that because we are loved by God, we are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are reconciled. We are new creatures. The old is gone. The new has come. God's sovereignty and His love allow us to stand fast and to hold firm during these trials. And in this, we, we have to link this with what Paul says of being chosen and love, they have to always uh, stay linked together. They, they never must be or can be pulled apart because pulled apart, uh, they can become a destructive thing. They, they stay together. And it, 
In Ephesians 1.4, the Apostle Paul tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And that is such an encouragement. It's an encouragement to me. I trust that it is to you because if you understand that you were loved and chosen before the foundation of the world, then you realize that His love for you is not limited by any temporal, that is, anything in time, and or by any human factor. He knew before you were born. He knew before the foundation of the world that you were chosen for salvation. God's love transcends all categories. Did God's love begin when we began to love God? Or, or perhaps when we were born? Or perhaps when we were saved? When, when did God's love begin for you? From eternity past. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. Now Paul places God's love for you before the foundation of the world. And what he's calling us to do is that in light of that, exercise your duties as a citizen of the kingdom. Stand firm, hold fast. Those are military orders. He took them straight out of uh, uh, you know, right out of the, the Roman uh, command uh, book. And uh, during the Republic in Rome, in order, as a citizen, you had to serve. You had to serve. And only citizens could serve. Now, they changed that during, you know, later years in Rome. But initially, it was because you were a citizen that you served. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are called into his service and you have been ordered to stand fast, to hold firm, or to stand firm, hold fast. So stand firm is a present tense uh, command. I love that because it's not a, a, a one-time thing. It could be translated as keep on it standing, keep doing this, keep standing firm. I think of David when he was at the cave of Adullam and he was hiding from Saul's troops who were just uh, dead set on killing him. And he wrote Psalm 57, 7, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing your praises. Now, in my moments when I'm feeling uh, pretty good about myself, I like to think that I would be able to do that. But the truth is, I, I don't think I would. I think I would have a different prayer and writing that was going on. But I'm encouraged by a poem whose author is lost to history but speaks of God's sovereignty, where the poem goes, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. That's a far cry from saying there is no reason why. The fact that you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. 
Now, another option the church has wildly taken after these days, I don't mean this church, but I mean the church at large, is a thing called open theism, which is, I think, developed uh, from an honest heart to try to defend God against the evils that occur in our lives and, and in, in the world. But the problem is, the claim is that there are things that will happen that God doesn't know about yet. That's why it's called open theism. Things that occur in the open, undetermined future. So if someone you love is killed in Ukraine, God weeps with you, but it surprised him as much as it did you. And, and I somehow find no comfort in that. I find some sort of academic means of defending the honor of God, uh, I think, harms his honor. Paul's point here is this. God's choosing you guarantees you. Does that make sense? He chose you before the foundation of the world. Do you think for one second that anything is going to change the will of God? That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, elsewhere we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Second, based on that calling, we've been ordered, as I've been saying all along, to stand firm, to hold fast. He says to the traditions either taught by uh, word or letter. Paul wrote in verse 15, Stand firm and hold to uh, the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. More than anything, I believe our generation needs to hear the words stand firm. Paul already tells us that we have what it takes takes, that we have to draw on the resources that are available to us to live accordingly. Take God at his word and do not quit. I mean, when the Israelites were at the Red Sea, God didn't say, go into the water and drown. He said, I will see you through to the other side. I'm reminded of Lieutenant General Hal Moore. He was then a lieutenant colonel. He, he commanded the 6th Cav at Idrang uh, during the battle. Told his, uh, his RTO, his uh, radio man, to call Broken Arrow. That's a code phrase that meant a ground unit is facing imminent destruction from enemy attack and all available air forces in the area to immediately provide air support. When he did that, he looked down at his West Point ring. As a devout Christian, he knew the ring had no power, but the ring represented all the training and all the knowledge and all the understanding that he had about what he needed to do at that particular moment in the, in the battle. And what it represented to him was a calling upon all of those resources as to what to do now. And this is what believers must do when pressure comes. I don't know what pressures are in your life, but I do know this, you all have pressures in your life. And when those pressures become too much, when they begin to bear down on you, we must look at our resources, the love of God, 
His precious word, the indwelling spirit, and you together as community, us fellow believers. And then he says, hold fast. And uh, what we must understand about this is that the believers, they were, they were new believers. Not only that, they were new believers in the context of a developing scripture. The scripture as we know it, they did not have. It was coming to them, and so they relied on the traditions and the letters. And that didn't originate in the mind of man, but in the life and the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And of course, all of these things are embedded in the New Testament for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul commends the Corinthians for maintaining the traditions that he had given them. One of them, the Lord's table. A God-given reminder to help us grasp what it was and marvel at as well the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our behalf and what it means to us now in terms of new life, resurrection, power, the ability to praise and worship. When we gather at the Lord's table, we are maintaining the traditions. Unfortunately, today, the church in large part uh, suffers from a genuine biblical illiteracy. Uh, you, You may think this is funny, but this is from surveys. There are a lot of Christians who think that an epistle is the wife of an apostle. That Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. Far worse, though, they... They don't understand what the new covenant is and why it was necessary. And finally, Paul shows us how we are equipped to stand firm. How God equips us. And he he does this by affirming that we are loved. He comforts us and he gives us hope. Now may our Lord, in verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who had loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. You know, when God broke into our lives, He gave us eternal comfort and encouragement. When we struggle with discouragement, I recommend to you highly that what you do is reflect upon the day of your own salvation. Reflect upon that day and God's love and His comfort will emerge in your thoughts. What a wonderful salvation we have in Christ. And when he saved us, God gave us good hope by grace. And it's good hope because it's inevitable. We think of hope as, oh, I hope this may happen. Or hope That's not a biblical hope. A biblical hope is a certainty. And this will happen. It's inevitable based on God's promises. It's good because it's not based on our merits. I'm a merit-based person but not when it comes to salvation. When it comes to salvation, it's all about grace. It's not about our performance, but it's about God's undeserved favor towards us. And it's a a great hope because it's not yet realized. He also prays that the Lord may comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That those two must always go together. I mean, if we're all work and no words, people may think we're good people, but they won't know why. They'll just say, oh, that's a good, you know, it's a good person. 
So we have to speak. But if we speak only and we do nothing about it, people are going to think maybe that we're not really sincere, maybe even as, as bad as, as being hypocritical. But our good works should open the door to speak words of Christ to others, especially when you see someone in the midst of a trial to be encouraged and strengthened. You have the power to do that. Why? Because you have been eternally comforted and encouraged. That means you have something to give to another. So we sit at the culminating point. You know, the non-aligned in faith have moved from 5% in 1972 to over 25% today. And the way that works out is among conservatives, that's, that number is 11%. Among liberals, it's 38%. In military doctrine, a unit that is attrited, that is worn down by sustained action by more than 10%, cannot complete its primary functions. And so you have to develop contingency plans and contingencies. We are at that point. We are. We really are at that point. And the things that we do, we may not think that our little skirmish means anything to anybody, but you do not know. You do not know what God's plan is. We are called to stand. We are called to hold. We are at that point, and it won't be long before there's a reckoning. And my hope is that we, on the verge of defeat, even for, I would hope more, but even for a moment, that we would develop a strategy for victory. Wherever God has placed you, stand that ground. Stand firm. Hold fast. Father, we, we only dimly realize that we are in a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. Lord, we only dimly see that that battle goes on in our own hearts, in our own minds. Satan would do would love nothing more than if he can't take one of God's loved ones, he can sideline him. Lord, we pray that through your spirit, your power, the comfort and encouragement that you give, that we would be able to stand fast and hold firm through Christ our Lord. Amen.